Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Will the pensions triple lock last beyond the general election? Ros Altman, former pensions minister, thinks it should be scrapped. Pensions freedoms, but if you take advantage of your right to cash in your pension, could it affect your ability to get a mortgage in later life? And mini-bonds are all the rage, but what are they? And are they actually a worthwhile investment? We find out. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Hugo Greenhouse, the FT's wealth correspondent, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. With the clock ticking on the general election, the focus has fallen on whether the pensions triple lock will survive, particularly if the Conservatives win a convincing majority. Under the current commitment, the state pension must increase by a minimum of either inflation, average earnings, or 2.5% if the other two figures are lower. Labour has just committed to keeping the triple lock, but there are indications that Theresa May might be wavering. I'm joined now by Ros Altman, Baroness Altman, a former pensions minister under David Cameron. Ros, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Hugo. Nice to be here. Absolutely. And we'll come on to what Theresa May thinks in a second, but you're in favour of scrapping it, I think. Why is that? Well, what I'm in favour of is protecting pensioners properly, and I don't believe that the triple lock actually does that job. And therefore, I think politically, it has become a bit of a totemic signal suggesting that the government offers brilliant protection to pensioners. But when you look at the detail, and the devil is always in the detail, actually what you see is something that is not properly protecting the oldest and poorest pensioners, who are surely the ones that you would want most to protect. Absolutely. I don't think anyone could argue with that. So what what, what should be done? What, what, what could be put in its place then, do you think? What I think would be fairer and certainly more more logical and indeed better policy would be what I've called a double lock, essentially protecting pensioners, as we must do, against falling behind average earnings and the rest of the economy, uh, or protecting them against rises in the cost of living. Now, you could do that by committing to increase the state pension by average earnings, which usually is higher than inflation. But if inflation exceeds average earnings, because there is some particular issue in the economy, that you would also protect pensions to make sure that pensioners uh, can keep up with the cost of living. And that means dropping this arbitrary 2.5% 
commitment, which doesn't actually have any economic or social logic. It doesn't reflect any uh, economic or social variables. So does it come down to that issue of affordability? I mean, if the current system stays in place, is it affordable, do you think? Well, obviously, the government can choose how to spend public money. And if it wants to spend a particular amount on pensions, it can do so. But I think from the perspective of overall public spending, the more expensive the long-term commitment to state pensions, the higher or greater the pressure will be on the state pension age itself. Uh, And uh, analysis has suggested that if one was to promise this double lock so pensioners are properly protected and by the way I think that needs to apply to the pension credit which is what the poorest pensioners live on and currently the triple lock doesn't cover that then by dropping the two and a half percent element that is equivalent roughly to an increase of one and a half years in the state pension age and therefore you can see that there are trade-offs here yes Therefore, I think it's better to have a more sustainable and sensible protection for pensioners and a fairer protection for pensioners, while also ensuring that you don't put too much upward pressure on the state pension age because the state pension age rises have already caused significant problems for certain groups. And obviously, you know, particularly those with much shorter than average life expectancy or those in poor health, they can't get a penny of state pension until they reach this state pension age. If you're healthy and wealthy enough to wait longer than state pension age, you can get a lot more than the state pension, but you can't get a penny, not even, you know, a reduced amount, if you're particularly ill or have a very shortened life expectancy before you reach that minimum starting age. So let's just kind of break that down. Do you think that there is going to be that blunt trade-off, as it were, between retaining the triple lock on the one hand and having to see the state pension age rise on the other? The the two things are linked, you feel? They are definitely linked, and the uh, Cridland report has explicitly pointed out the trade-offs here. But I do think we mustn't forget that the triple lock itself is not doing the job you'd want it to do. It's a political construct. Now that we've got the new state pension, you are protecting £160 a week with the triple lock for the youngest pensioners and only 120 a week for the old state pension system and no triple lock protection at all for the pension credit, which is what the poorest pensioners rely on. Final question coming, you know, running up to a general election and here come the cliches. But do do you think this could become a political football? I mean, it's quite a fiddly and technical uh, issue to gain traction amongst the, the, the general population, surely. That's the problem. You know, the triple lock headline is we protect the state pension. What it doesn't say is we only protect two bits of the state pension. The state pension comes in six bits. You know, the widow's pensions aren't protected. SERPs isn't protected. S2P isn't protected. And as I say, pension credit isn't either. So the, the headline is very different. I don't know, obviously, what Theresa May is going to uh, commit to in the manifesto. And it may be that there won't be a particular explicit mention of this, or it may be that there'll be a commitment to keep the old promise of, of uh, the triple lock to 2020. And, and I think the expectation is that uh, prices and or earnings will rise by more than two and a half percent in each year till then anyway. But beyond that, 
and certainly after the election, I think if the Conservative government comes in and needs to look at these issues in the round and respond to the Cridland Review, I would expect that there will be serious consideration of whether the triple lock makes sense or whether there is a much better way of protecting pensioners, and of course we do need to protect pensioners, that does the job more fairly. And we shall see as as things pan out over the next five, six weeks or so. Well, Ros, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Hugo. And you can read more about the party's plans for the pensions triple lock at fd.com forward slash money or in the weekend paper. Now, sticking with the pensions theme, people taking advantage of pensions freedoms are inadvertently constraining their ability to get a mortgage later in life. The pensions freedoms introduced in 2015 did away with the effective requirement for people to take out an annuity on retirement and allowed much greater freedom over what they could do with their pension savings. All of a sudden, people could take out part of their pensions tax-free in cash or move them into what's called drawdown, where their money is invested in things like the stock market and they draw on it over time. The pensions reforms, however, had an unintended consequence for those wanting to get a home loan. Deputy Personal Finance Editor James Pickford has been reporting on it this week. Now, James, many of these retirees will have a lot of pensions assets at their disposal. Why would the reforms affect their ability to get a mortgage? Well, it's all about the tests that lenders apply to tell whether someone can afford a mortgage. And those tests, since the financial crisis and in legislation specifically since 2014, have really tightened up on the kinds of income that they can include when they're judging the uh, whether someone can afford a mortgage. And quite apart from what's in the official tests, lenders are in any case very, very cautious in the current climate, post-financial crisis, about what they can do. Now, when it comes to people in retirement or people going into retirement, they will look at uh, pension income. And in the past, you would have most people would be were forced to buy an annuity. And an annuity is essentially a guaranteed income stream for life. So there's nothing more rock solid for a lender to base his judgment on than an annuity. What has happened is that annuity rates have, have, have fallen. They're, they're, they're not anything like as attractive. They've plummeted, haven't they? Yes. And, um, and the government, uh, George Osborne, um, came out with big pension reforms which allow you to uh, essentially not to have to buy an annuity on retirement. So you can move into drawdown, which, as you said, is a different way of uh, creating pension income. The problem is uh, lenders aren't quite so happy with it. Let's look at that. I mean, surely you've got this drawdown uh, system in place. I mean, doesn't that provide evidence of income? It certainly does. And for your pension income, it can work very well indeed. The problem with it is, uh, for lenders, is that it's much less predictable than an annuity because what you do with a drawdown is you invest your pension assets in some sort of investment like the, the stock market and then that may or may not grow. Yes, uh, so, <laughs> very true. So, um, you know, the other thing that's been going on is that people have been people are now allowed to take a cash lump sum tax-free out of their pension. Ah, yes, of course, to get the Lamborghini, as we were told the by the then pension so, minister. Yes, or, or more commonly, apparently, the, the conservatory is what it's <laughs> being useful. But the people take this out. It reduces the capital that they have overall, and therefore you're, you're going to get less income potentially in the long term. And so lenders are looking more at that. There's basically, the, when you put all these trends together, more of this is going to happen and uh, and lenders are going to have to be um, clever about assessing it. Is this an industry-wide problem? Are, are, are all lenders equally intractable on this? Not at all. I mean, there are, broadly speaking, two types of lenders. Uh, it's a big generalisation, but you've got the big 
banks, the volume players who would judge a mortgage often based on a computer algorithm that will tell them whether you're a wise person to lend to. And most of the the people we're talking about here, the older borrowers, would, would often fail for those types of lender because they don't pass on those criteria. But for smaller lenders, particularly building societies, where you have uh, human beings doing the underwriting, making the judgments, they will be able to lend to older people. And in fact, we've seen a few building societies move on this recently. The problem is those loans, because you've got a smaller number of people offering them, will often be slightly more expensive. So if you've got the personal touch, then fine, but otherwise it's computer says no. So should the regulator step in and force the lenders to change, do you think? Well, the regulator two years ago, I think, has said, we need a big change on this. We need lenders to become much more innovative about how they deal with lending to older people. And that's both for lending into retirement, so you're still working, but you're looking to take a mortgage out, or lending at the other end, where you want to realise some of the value of uh, what, what is often a very big asset in terms of your house, so just a 10% mortgage, which you may not be able to do at the moment. So, and Nationwide and Halifax, they last year, they lifted their maximum, uh, the maximum age at which you had to pay back your mortgage. So there has been movement. The problem is the age limit isn't really the problem here. It's the affordability test at the other end, and they're not really currently changing their criteria. Well, this is one that we're going to come back to time and time again, I'm sure, because it will affect a lot of our listeners who are looking, eyeing up that Lamborghini or perhaps more (laughs) accurately looking at the conservatory on their house at the moment and thinking maybe it's the time to cash in their pension. But, James, thank you very much for joining us. And you can read James's article at ft.com forward slash money or in the weekend FT. Mini bonds. What are they? What do they do? And are they worth it? In essence, these can be a way for companies to crowdfund their debt requirements, so they've become very popular with fast-growing younger businesses. But are you taking on more risk than you think? And would it be simpler and better just to buy equities instead? I'm joined now by Amy Williams, who covers investments for FT Money. Amy, first, let's just establish what exactly is a mini-bond. Well, Hugo, a mini-bond generally is an unlisted non-transferable and usually unsecured bond. Okay, but in English, what does that mean? Well, it means that the company issuing the bond usually goes directly to the investor to ask for the money. So we've seen recently companies doing this through websites where you kind of look at the advert and you think that seems like a good idea and you can buy bonds through them directly. And more recently, we've seen it happening through crowdfunding websites. So small startup companies might list on a crowdfunding website normally and and mostly it's been so far to sell their shares but more recently we've seen them issuing bonds instead of shares so it's basically a way of kind of borrowing smaller amounts of money rather than going for all the malarkey of issuing a corporate bond as it were and kind of gaining investors at a lower level yeah exactly and it's also a way to get some money if you're a small largely unproven business. So we're talking about entrepreneurial, high growth, generally high risk companies. Those are the kinds of companies that are going to crowdfunding websites. I should say that the first mini bonds that were ever really issued were actually issued by much larger companies and they were not issued by crowdfunding 
website. So actually, there's been this movement away from mini bonds being issued by the likes of John Lewis, say, who did issue one of the earliest mini bonds, towards smaller, more entrepreneurial companies. So breweries or restaurant chains, people with big ideas and big dreams, high growth companies issuing bonds instead. So that's what they are. But are they worth it, or should you be buying shares instead through crowdfunding, for example? Well, talking to analysts on this topic, the problem with buying bonds from very small companies is that you are taking a lot of risk because largely these companies, like I said, they have a bit of a dream and they want to do something and they're often disruptive and they want you to come along with them on their journey. And that's all well and good. But if you buy a bond, you're kind of getting quite a lot of risk, i.e. this company, this idea won't work and you'll lose your money. And you're not necessarily being paid very much for it because obviously bonds give you a fixed rate of return. So they'll say, we'll give you 6% or 7% or 8%. If you buy shares in that company, you get a similar risk, i.e. this idea will not work out, you'll lose all your money. But if it does work out, you could see a massive, massive gain. But there is a quid pro quo there, because obviously in terms of if you just simply can lend the company some money on a kind of mini bond or in a structure, basically, you get the fixed rate of income, so you're sure what's going to happen. But if you buy equities, well, there's a risk you could lose everything. But there's a risk you could lose everything with a mini bond, and that's that's sort of the point. I mean, if it's a if it's a very large company... And it's got a you know long history of accounts. You can sort of dig through those and have a look. And indeed, if you do want to buy the bonds, that's what you should be doing. You should be looking at their book. How do they intend to pay this back? If they intend to pay it back by growing their business very quickly and increasing their cash generation, then maybe you should think about getting shares instead of a bond. If, on the other hand, they have a secured bond, so they have some assets and you have your debt secured on those assets, and maybe if it did go wrong, you could get your money back. And if they have a long history of making steady returns and you can see all that in the accounts, then maybe you're okay. But if you're investing in a brand new company, you need to be very, very careful. Fantastic. Well, Amy, thank you very much for that. And Amy's writing a column for this week's uh, money section looking at exactly this issue. So do read her article at ft.com forward slash money or buy the weekend paper. And that's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us at money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com forward slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.